Amen. If you would, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter number 22. Numbers chapter number 22. As you're turning there, many times we don't hear many um, sermons preached out of uh, Numbers or Leviticus or Deuteronomy in our Bibles, yet they're very important. The first five books of the Bible are very, very important, even though many times we don't recognize the importance of them. Um, all of them were written by Moses. In fact, the first five books of the Bible comprise um, one-third of the entire Old Testament. And as we look at the five books that uh, comprise it, what we call the Pentateuch, we look at the first book of the Bible, and that is the book of Genesis. Um, Genesis basically means beginnings, and of course, um, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. We see it as a book of firsts. Um, we see the first man, the first marriage, the first sin, the first government, many firsts listed in the book of Genesis. But also, as far as the children of Israel are concerned, it is also important for this fact. It is a book of choosing. It is a book of calling. When we look in this Bible, we see that God chose and called Abraham. Amongst all the people of Ur and of Mesopotamia, God called out Abraham and his people. Not only did he choose Abraham, but of Abraham's children, both Isaac and Ishmael, God chose Isaac. He said, for in Isaac shall my seed be called. And then when we look at Isaac's children, Abraham's grandchildren between Esau and Jacob, we see that God chose Jacob and gave him a new name, the name Israel, how we recognize his children. Even today, the nation of Israel is still strong and the people of Israel are still strong. We see not only um, God's choosing and calling in the book of Genesis, but when we look at the book of Exodus, we see this, that in the book of Genesis, God called the children of Israel out. But by the end of the book of Genesis, what had happened? Joseph had led his family into Egypt, delivering them from a famine and during his day. And we find out at the end of the book of Genesis that Joseph, Joseph had died and he was buried in a coffin. Then we find out in the book of Exodus that in the beginning of the book of Exodus, there rose up a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. He did not remember what Joseph had done, even for the Egyptian people. And they had put the children of Israel into captivity. And in the book of Exodus, we see this, that the book of Exodus for the children of Israel was a book of redemption. It was a book of redemption. We see that God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. Then he gives them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And the children of Israel are enthusiastic about it and they are full of pride and they trust in their own heart. Even though the Bible will tell us later on that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? They are full of pride and they said, we will keep your commandments and we will do them forever. But we see before the end of the book of Exodus, the children of Israel had failed, promptly failed, in keeping God's commandments. But God graciously, even in that moment, at the end of the book of Exodus, calls to the children of Israel 
and orders them and commands them to build a tabernacle, a dwelling place, not just for them to offer sacrifices, but that God could come down and dwell amongst His people. We see God begin to give the law in the book of Exodus, but we also see the grace of God that even in the children of Israel's prompt failure and their inability to keep His commandments, God does not discard them. God just does not leave them to die in the wilderness. No, He still comes down and dwells among them. I see law and grace in the book of Exodus. When we look at the book of Leviticus, what we see here is, after the children of Israel's failure, after God tells them and instructs them to build the tabernacle and all the instruments of the tabernacle, now God says, we will stay here at Mount Sinai, and I will teach you something. It was time for the children of Israel to learn something about God. And what we see in the book of Leviticus is this. We learn in the book of Leviticus that God is holy. And in being a holy God, He just cannot be approached in any fashion or any form that the human heart devises upon its own self. So right here we see an interesting book. Do you realize this, that the book of Leviticus has more direct utterances from God than any other book in the Bible? In fact, for the most part of the book of Exodus, 90% of the book of Exodus, probably even more than that, what you have is, in your mind, Moses with a pen and a pen, I mean, and paper writing down as God speaks to him. And after their failure, they're learning that God is holy. They're also learning how God wants them to worship. And we see in the worship in the book of Leviticus this. God gives them five great offerings and eight great feasts so that they can experience the truth of God. I don't know how many of y'all have ever heard a sermon preached out of the book of Leviticus, and it's a very sad thing that many Christians spend their entire lives and never once hear a sermon preached from the book of Leviticus. But in the great offerings, in the great feast that we see in the book of Leviticus, in all the symbolism of the things that they were commanded to do, those Levitical priests, we see time and time again the figure and type of Jesus Christ and His grace which would be bestowed for us. If you're looking for a book to study in the Bible, do not ignore the book of Leviticus because we see in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, such great pictures of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. In the book of Numbers, we see this, that the book of Numbers is a book of testing for the children of Israel. And we see in that testing that the children of Israel again would fail. We see in, cha in chapters 12, 11 through 16, excuse me, we see the failure of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. Here at Kadesh Barnea, the children of Israel go out and send 12 spies into the promised land to spy out the land. And we know the story of those 12 spies and the reports that they gave. The children of Israel did not have faith in God and they reject God's command to go into the land and thus as punishment God causes them to wander 40 years in the wilderness. Not only did that happen at Kadesh Barnea, but not only where we see the failure with the 12 spies, but also 
we see the rebellion of Aaron and Miriam over the issue of Moses' marriage with a Gentile woman. Because of that rebellion, God would have to punish, particularly Miriam, for her sin. But not only that, we also see even amongst the people that God had called to do the service for the Lord, the rebellion of the, of the people um, that followed Korah. Korah, the man who stood up against the, uh, Aaron as being the high priest. Korah, the great-grandson of Levi, did not like the fact that Aaron had become the high priest. And he tells the people, why are we listening to Moses and Aaron? They take too much upon themselves. We are all holy. And God dwells amongst us. We do not have to follow after Moses and Aaron. And we see the great judgment of God upon the people that rebelled with Korah. Not only do we see that in the book of Numbers, but not only amongst the children of Israel, but we see Moses' failure as well. We see his fatal disobedience in smiting the rock when God had instructed him to speak to it. And because of his disobedience, God said he could not enter into the promised land. We also see Israel's complaining and murmuring and the fiery serpents that would come and the need for the raising of the brazen serpent, which is a picture of Jesus Christ's death and the salvation that he can bring. And then we see the situation with Balaam near the end of the children of Israel's journey. The book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy simply means second law. And what we find in the book of Deuteronomy is now the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness has come to an end. And now we see for the children of Israel that Deuteronomy is a book of preparation. They are preparing to go into the promised land. Moses cannot go with them. But what he does is he begins to speak to them and explain to them that there are conditions for them when they go into the land for them to be able to possess it. And as we hear it, Moses basically goes over again the law, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments of God to these children who are about to go into the promised land. And if I were to explain the, command, the conditions that God laid upon the children of Israel in order to possess the promised land in one word, it would be this. Obedience. Obey. Obey my command. If you will follow what I tell you, if you will do what I have told you, you will possess the land. If you choose not to obey, then you will be taken away from the land. And then in closing in the book of Deuteronomy, we see a new leader chosen for the children of Israel in Joshua, and the old leader passes on in the person of Moses. Now, what we're going to be looking at today, as I've already told you, is in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter number 22. And as we begin to look at Numbers chapter number 22, I want to tell you this. We will find Israel at one of their lowest points in all their journey in the wilderness. Their time in the wilderness is now coming to an end. They have been wandering nearly 40 years by the time we get to Numbers chapter 22. And what have they been doing? Nothing but murmuring and complaining the entire time. In chapter number 20, Moses disobeyed God by smiting the rock instead of speaking to it. 
as he was commanded. In Numbers 21, the children of Israel spake against the Lord, and the Lord sent fiery serpents to destroy them. And now the children of Israel are near the end of their 40 years of wandering. Aaron the high priest, Moses' brother, is now dead. The children of Israel are at a low point in their relationship with God. And it is at this point that Satan sets up his greatest attack upon the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it is here that we learn a powerful lesson about God's love for us. If you're taking notes, the title of the message this evening is this. God's enduring love for us. God's enduring love for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that we have to study your word. I pray that you will speak to hearts. Let something that is said this evening help us in our understanding of the scripture and also help us in our daily walk for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first thing I want to point out here in Numbers chapter number 2 is the situation in the wilderness. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 22. The Bible says, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab, on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are around about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers therefore unto Balaam the son of Beor to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt, Behold, they cover the face of the whole earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me these people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure, I shall prevail that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Now what we see here is a grave situation. The first thing before we get into this is I want you to understand something. The entire story of Balaam came to us by nothing else than definite, direct inspiration of God. There was no way on earth for Moses to know who Balaam was or the situation here at this time. Balaam never once in his life met any child of Israel. He never spoke to them. He had no dealings with them. When we look at the place that he came from in verse number 5, he came from the town of Pethor. Notice it says, which it is by the river of his people. What that is referring to is Balaam came from Mesopotamia. A great distance away, he had never come in contact with the Israelites. In fact, the closest that Balaam ever came to the children of Israel was when he stood top of one of the mountains that surrounded the camp of Israel, Pisgah and Peor, 
and looked down and beheld the children of Israel. Moses did not know Balaam. The children of Israel did not know the threat of Balaam. And during this time, the children of Israel were as ungrateful and complaining as ever. You see, it should not be surprising that it is at this time when they were ungrateful, when they were unspiritual, when they were complaining and murmuring that Satan decided to send his greatest attack. And that attack came with Balaam. The Bible says this about Satan. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Notice that Satan is compared to a roaring lion. I'm sure many of y'all have watched nature shows on TV, and you've seen lions running around in Africa. Do you notice that when a lion attacks, he doesn't go out to catch the fastest of the gazelles? What does he go after? He goes after the slowest one, the weakest one, the one that is um, trailing behind. That's who Satan attacks. That's who Satan defeats. And Satan looked at the children of Israel, and they were weak, and they were slow, and they were out of the will of God. And Satan said to himself, this is my perfect opportunity to destroy them all. I'm going to get the greatest sorcerer, a false prophet of renown, a man by the name of Balaam, to curse these people so that Moab might wipe them off the face of the earth. We see the situation in the wilderness. And then we see Satan's plan of attack. Satan's plan of attack. We have to understand Satan's theory about God here. Satan had a certain idea about God. He was mistaken, but he had an idea of who God was and what God would do here in Numbers chapter 22. Let me explain it to you like this. Satan thought after 40 years of nothing but complaining and ingratitude, surely God would be through with the children of Israel. After all, how much complaining and ingratitude would you put up with after you try to help and save a group of people? The children of Israel are delivered out of slavery in the land of Egypt where the Egyptians are planning genocide upon the children of Israel by killing every one of their sons that are born. And after God delivers them, isn't it remarkable that the men and especially the women of Israel would go and say, let us return to the land of Egypt. Let us instead of eating manna and quail, go back and eat the, the onions and the cabbage that we had down there. Let us go back to a situation where the Egyptians simply want to breed us out. That's a better situation than what we have with God. How do you think that made God feel? God provides for them. He gives them water in the desert. He gives them food in the desert. And what do they do? Nothing but complain. Not only amongst the people, but we even begin to see cracks in Moses. 
Moses begins to disobey God and he begins not to listen to what God said and the smiting of the rock. And Satan said, God's got to be had enough with this. He has to have had it up to here with the children of Israel. Now's the time to point out my greatest attack. If I curse him now, the children of Israel, God will just step aside and allow the people of Moab to have their way. I think this is the way many Christians feel about God's relationship with us. I think there's many Christians who walk about and think, I've already tried God too many times. Hey, I pushed his buttons once too often. I've let him down too much. God does not want to have anything to do with me. Have you been there before? Where you think you've just gone a little bit too far? Hey, you've been just too ungrateful? You've murmured and complained a bit too much? And God must be done with us. However, God speaks to this, and He gives us this word of promise. We see it in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13 and verse 5. Here in the book of Hebrews, God says to us, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. It was at this point, it was at this place, that Satan decided to use his biggest weapon against Israel. We've already been introduced to him in chapter 22. His name was Balaam, the false prophet, come all the way from Mesopotamia. Don't think of him as just a minor character. Understand this, he is known all over as being the greatest prophet for hire. He will curse anyone if the money's right. And we see this. We see this in verse number 7. I mean, and in verse number 7, if you look at this, the Bible says, And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand, and they came unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak. And Balaam said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak, and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And Balak sent yet again princes, more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam, and said unto him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me these people. Now what did God tell Balaam to do in the first place? Don't go. Don't go. You see, God said... They are not to be cursed because they are blessed. I have blessed them. 
do not curse them. When Balak hears he goes over to um, his people and says, send greater men there and tell them I will make Balaam the greatest man in the land and I will give him whatever he asks, however much money he wants, if he'll just come. Now listen to this, verse number 18. When Balaam heard this, he said, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Doesn't that sound awful spiritual of old Balaam? But just listen to the next verse now. Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. He said, look, I can't go. He says, I don't care if you took my house and filled it with silver and gold. I can't go. But hold on a minute, guys. I want you all to spend the night. I'm going to go back and ask God what he wants me to do. What did God already tell Balaam to do? Don't go. But now Balaam's heard this. I can get more money. I can become famous and powerful and prestigious. More honorable than any of these people. Let me just go back and see if God's changed his mind. You see, if the price is right, you can get Balaam to do anything you want. And with this situation, the P- Balaam decides to go with him. Understand this, though. Balak is spending a lot of effort to get Balaam to come, correct? He sent his people twice, from Moab all the way to Mesopotamia, to speak to Balaam. He's offered Balaam fame. He's offered Balaam money, more money than he can even imagine. Why would a man waste that much time on a man who did not have power? Who didn't have the ability to do what he said? You see, his curses must have worked, or people wouldn't seek him out all over the known world. Satan surely thought that God wouldn't stop Balaam from hurting such sorry people as Israel. The gig's up. Satan has sprung his greatest trap. And it's right here that we learn something. We learn this. We see God's revelation of his enduring love. The first thing I want to point out is Satan was greatly mistaken. Satan was greatly mistaken. He was a fool to think that the infinite God could be worn out by a mere 40 years of complaining. When Balak, the king of Moab, tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, God made Balaam bless him. I want you all to see this. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers, chapter number 23. Numbers, chapter number 23. We're going to look at verse number 5. In chapter 23, I want you to picture this. Balak has taken Balaam, and he's taken him to the high places of his god Baal, overlooking the camp of the children of Israel, up at the high place where they worshipped and offered sacrifices to that idol Baal. And Balaam's standing up there, and he's going to speak, and he's going to curse Israel, and he's going to weaken them enough where Moab can destroy them. And right at that point, right before he's going to curse, look at verse number 5. 
The Bible says, And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and said, Return unto Balak, and thus shalt thou speak. And he returned unto him, and said, And lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab. Now, at this time, Balak had built seven altars, and he had offered seven sacrifices. And verse 7 says, And Balaam took up his parable, and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram, out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? and the number of the fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. And Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? He's taken Balak's money, He's standing on the hill, seven altars, seven bird sacrifices. And when Balaam gets ready to curse, what happens? God puts a word in his mouth. Now God begins to speak through Balaam. Don't think that Balaam is a follower of God. He knows the name Jehovah. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to take all his magic spells and put it under the name of Jehovah and merge them together. Maybe he can get a little bit more power and authority through that. But he is not a lover of God. However, God uses Balaam. And don't be disturbed by the fact that God uses the enemies of God for his purpose. After all, in the story of Balaam, we know that God used a donkey and used his mouth to speak. Why are we surprised if God would use a donkey's mouth that he wouldn't use Balaam's mouth to speak his truth? Balak's upset. Why did I bring you all the way from Mesopotamia? Why did I pay you all this money? No, you're going to do what I said. So he takes him away from the high places of Baal. And now he takes him to a famous mountain in the Bible, Mount Pisgah. Maybe some of us in this room have heard of a Mount Pisgah Baptist church. Well, this is the Mount Pisgah they're named after. If we look in Numbers chapter 23... In verse number 16, we see the second attempt to curse Israel. And the Bible says in verse number 16, while they're standing at the top of Mount Pisgah, it says, And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. And when he came to him, behold, Balak stood by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, What hath the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall not he do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. 
He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Behold, the people rise up as a great lion, and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink of the blood of the slain. And Balak said unto Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. In other words, Balak saying, Shut up! This isn't good. Verse 26, the Bible says, And Balaam answered and said unto Balak, Told not I thee, saying, All that the Lord speaketh, that I must do? Now Balak's tried twice to curse the children of Israel. He put them in the high places of Baal, and the power of Baal couldn't stop them. He put them on the lofty height of Mount Pisgah, overlooking the camp of the Israelites. And even then, Balaam could do nothing but bless his people. Now Balak tries one more time. He takes him to another mountain, Mount Peor. And we see here in Numbers chapter 24, in verse number 1, we see what happens then. And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. In other words, Balaam understands this. Balak paid him a lot of money to curse. And he keeps saying, I'm going to talk to God and ask God, the Lord, if he will quit blessing Israel and maybe curse him. So he goes to his enchantments trying to get the Lord to speak to him and change his mind. And what does the Lord do every time? He says, you're going to bless him. So this time, Balaam says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just not going to ask the Lord anything. I'm not going to seek through enchantments anymore. I'm just going to set my face toward the wilderness and without even asking him, I on my own am going to curse the children of Israel. So keep that in mind now in verse 1. Now look at verse number 2. Balaam, he's got a lot of money that's jingling in his pockets, telling him he better curse the children of Israel. And it says in verse 2, And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Remember, Balaam's trying not to talk to God. I'm just going to do this on my own. Hey, God, I'm not going to ask you what you think. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to set my face toward the wilderness and say what I want. But he can't. And it says in verse number 3, And Balaam took up his parable and, and said, Balaam the son of Beor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! As the valley are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of Lynn aloe, which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the water. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. And his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God 
brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations of his enemies, and shall break their bones, and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion, who shall stir him up. Blessed is he that blesses thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Now picture this. Balak's standing there. Balaam's standing there. This is the third time. Three times is a charm, right? Balak's saying, I paid you. You better curse him. And Balaam begins to speak. But it's not his words, it's God's words again. God has put his word into Balaam. And he can only speak what God says. And I want you to picture this. Balaam, Balak is starting to get angry. The king of Moab is burning up. He's like, shut up. Pay attention to me. Stop blessing the children of Israel. This is not what I paid you for. But he couldn't stop it. He couldn't help it. You know, it's so funny. Balaam had paid, I mean, Balak had paid Balaam to curse Israel so he might destroy them. But Balaam blessed them instead. Now, here's the incredible showing of God's enduring love. Israel had no clue what Balaam was. They had no idea of the threat that had fallen on them. This was a complete secret hidden from them. Now we've seen the situation outside the vision of the children of Israel. How Satan had set up his plan. How Balaam is standing on the high places and doing everything he can to curse the children of Israel. And God is standing there defending and protecting his people. What's the children of Israel doing down in the camp? Complaining. What are they doing in the camp? Murmuring. I don't know if you noticed a passage in the second parable that Balaam gave when he was blessing the children of Israel, but he said this, The Lord looks down upon Jacob, and he sees no sin. He looks down upon Israel, and he sees no perverseness. What's the children of Israel doing now? Complaining. Murmuring. Why did we wind up out here in the desert? Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? Why were we so stupid to follow Moses and follow God? Complaining over and over again. I'm sick and tired of eating manna. I'm sick and tired of eating quail. What are we doing in this wilderness? And as they complain, God is protecting them. You know, I'm reminded of Romans 5.8 here. But God commendeth. That means showed. But God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet ungrateful, while we were yet proud, while we were yet complaining, Christ died for us. You know, you may be here right now and you think God's through with you. You've crossed him too many times. You've been in faithful too long. I've got a question. How many times have you let God down? How many times have you let Him down? 
could it even be possible that you've let him down more than the children of Israel did? I would say no. My next question would be this then. How many years have you complained against God? Can you honestly tell me you've complained against God for 40 years? Is your sin, is your ingratitude greater than what we see here in the children of Israel? The answer, of course, is no. We have not let God down more than the children of Israel did. We have not complained longer than the children of Israel had. And our fault cannot possibly be greater than theirs. Yet God still loved them. And God still defended them. And if God loved and defended the children of Israel, I want you to know this, brothers and sisters. Rest assured that even in your failure, God has not forsaken you. And God is not through with you. What do we learn from Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24? We learn something special about God. We cannot exalt God's love for us. Let it be a blessing to you as we go forward.